Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 339, Does the New Testament Teach That Jesus Is Truly Divine? Loke versus Tuggy, Part 1. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, I'll present my audio-only edit of a debate which happened on August 2nd, 2021. It was between myself on the negative side, no, the New Testament does not teach that Jesus is truly divine, and on the positive side was Dr. Andrew Loke. Dr. Loke is a very accomplished and well-published scholar. He's the author of several books. Most relevantly to this debate is his book, The Origin of Divine Christology, published in 2017 by Cambridge University Press. Another relevant book of his is entitled A Cryptic Model of the Incarnation, published in 2014 by Routledge. In this book, Dr. Loke sketches out a somewhat new way of defending the logical coherence of a classical two-nature theory about Christ. The debate was set up by apologist Jordan Hampton for his YouTube channel entitled The Analytic Christian. And you should definitely check out that channel, by the way. He tends to focus on analytic theology, and he has many episodes in which he is interviewing top-level scholars of analytic theology. So it's a great channel to check out if you're just a thinking Christian who's not afraid of a little bit of philosophy. I really enjoyed this debate. I thought it was very cleanly fought. Dr. Loke is not what I call a Jesus is God apologist. That is somebody who simply collapses together Jesus and God, thinking that they are numerically one. He recognizes that because there are differences between them, they must be two. But he is urging that Christian scripture really does teach that Jesus is divine and not only human. So be a critical listener. Which opening statement better makes its case? Which rebuttal is more on target? In next week's episode, we'll get into the more freeform part of the debate where we discuss back and forth and field some questions. But in this episode, you'll hear a couple of, I think, very well-disciplined, well-presented cases for opposing positions. We did have slides for our openings, but I think the openings will be intelligible without them. If you want to see mine, I've also made my opening statement into a freestanding YouTube video, which is entitled, The Biblical Jesus is Not Fully Divine. I've got a link for that on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. I've also got a link to the Analytic Christian YouTube channel and to the original video format of this debate. Sorry, Jordan, I have edited you out as the moderator just to make a more pleasant audio-only experience for the listeners. So without further ado, we'll start with Dr. Andrew Loke's opening statement, his case that the New Testament does teach that Jesus is truly divine as in divine in the way that the one God is divine. The main bulk of my presentation is taken from this book published by Cambridge University Press in 2017. Before I go into the discussion of the passages in the New Testament, I would like to, uh, first of all, talk about some important rules of hermeneutics because I think the key issue in our discussion will be how we interpret the Bible, the New Testament. So how do we interpret any text properly? Well, we should follow these uh, principles. We should consider the literary genre, the context, the word meaning, the grammar, and the background and concerns of the biblical authors. We need to understand that the Bible was uh, written for us, but it's not written to us, right? It was written to the ancient Jews. And so we need to understand the ancient Jewish background of the text, and this is very important. And I also want to present some ground rules concerning inference. How do we infer a conclusion from the text? And of course, we need to follow the laws of logic, and we also need to, in discernibility analyticals, which uh, Dale emphasized a lot, For any X and Y, they are numerically identical only if they do not differ. However, we need to note that one thing can have two parts with different properties. So for example, I'm bleeding in respect of my leg, suppose, uh, but it's possible that I'm also not bleeding in respect to my arm at the same time, right? So I can be bleeding in one part of my body, but not bleeding in another part of my body. So likewise, it's possible for the Lord Jesus Christ to have two parts, a divine nature and a human nature with different properties. So he died in respect of his human nature, but not in respect of his, of his divine nature, which cannot die. And we find this concept within the biblical text itself. So for example, in Philippians chapter 2, 
verses 6 to 8. Now, it says that Christ is in the form of God. Now, the Greek word is morphe, and the word morphe implies an underlying nature, right? So Christ has a divine nature of God, and he is equal with God, right? So he's, he's truly divine. And he took up a morphe of a slave, uh, which is, uh, he took up humanity, and he died on the cross, right? So that's how he's able to die. So if you ask Paul, uh, how, how can Christ, who is truly divine, die? I mean, God cannot die, right? God is immortal. Well, I think Paul will answer that, yes, uh, if Christ is just divine, uh, you know, if he only has a divine nature, then of course he cannot die. But he took up a human nature, and that's how he can die. So I think that's how Paul will answer this question from Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 to 8. Now, concerning the exegesis of this passage, uh, I will encourage the audience to go and take a look at the debates between Dale and Chris Date. I have watched the debate, and I think that Chris Date has presented a number of linguistic arguments right, to show that uh, this passage does affirm that Jesus Christ is truly divine, as ontologically divine as the Father, equal with God. And I don't think Dale has actually rebutted his arguments. So I, I think that this passage does establish the conclusion that the New Testament teaches that Jesus is divine. But in addition to this passage, I'm going to talk about other passages right, to supplement and complement the case that uh, Chris Date has offered, and I'll be talking about this later on. So that's one rule of inference. And the second rule I want to highlight is that it is invalid to argue that Y is not a member of X just because Y has P, which X does not have. So to illustrate, right, it's invalid to argue that I'm not a member of the Society of Biblical Literature just because I took up a membership in the medical society, whereas the Society of Biblical Literature does not, right? Uh, so I, I could be a member of different societies. This doesn't mean that I'm not a member as well just because I'm also a member of another society because I took up a membership of another society. Likewise, it would be invalid to argue that Christ is not a member of the Godhead just because Christ died on the cross, whereas the Godhead did not die. Christ was able to die because, as I mentioned earlier on, he took up a human nature, and that's why he was able to die. And so these are important rules of inference. Now, on the other hand, why having any Q sufficient for being a member of X would imply that Y is a member of X. So to illustrate, suppose having an SBL membership card is sufficient for being a member of the SBL, then me having that membership card is sufficient for being a member of the SBL. So likewise, suppose having the property of being involved in creating all things is sufficient for being a member of the Godhead within the one being of the one God Yahweh. And so this is how, what, I, what I mean by truly divine. Then the Lord Jesus Christ being involved in creating all things is sufficient for being truly divine. And so this will be the main argument which I'll be presenting. In answer to the question, does the New Testament teach that Jesus is truly divine? This is the following argument. Premise one, according to the Old Testament and New Testament, being involved in creating all things is sufficient for being truly divine. Premise two, according to the New Testament, Jesus was involved in creating all things. Therefore, according to the New Testament, Jesus is truly divine. Now, this argument is uh, valid, obviously. The question is whether the premises are true or not. And so I'm going to defend the premise in what follows. So is premise one true? According to the New Testament, being involved in creating all things is sufficient for being truly divine. Now, uh, truly divine, the phrase is taken from John chapter 17. We'll talk about this later. And so I define it as of equal ontological status as God the Father. That is within the being of the one God, Yahweh. Okay, so that's the definition. And we need to understand the Jewish background of the New Testament authors. So for them, the background is the Old Testament, right? And we read the Old Testament, for example, in Psalm 96. It says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be revered above all gods. Why? Because for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord, Yahweh, made the heavens. So we see here that the idea of God being the creator is very important here. And Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24 says that, Yahweh says that I'm the Lord who alone stretch out the heavens, who by myself spread out the earth. Right. So God is the only creator. He created all things by himself. Now, this Jewish background is reflected in the letters of Paul in the New Testament. And Paul emphasized the oneness of God in his letters. And he was opposed to idolatry. And he condemned idolaters who worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. So we see, the, again, the importance of the creator-creature divide. And Paul also says in Romans eleven thirty six, from him, from God, and through him, and to him are all things. The word through here is the Greek word dia. We'll see that this is very important uh, in the following discussion. So in conclusion, I think premise one, is, uh, premise one is clearly established, right? Being involved in creating all things is sufficient for being truly divine. Now let's look at premise two. According to the New Testament, Jesus was involved in creating all things. And this is clearly stated in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. It says, yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and through whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Again, the same Greek word, dia, true is used, right? True whom are all things. 
So we can see from this verse that Jesus is on the creator side of the creator-creature divide. You know, he's the one through whom all things are created. Now, in his podcast, which I have listened uh, to quite a lot as I prepare for this debate, Dale thinks that all things, tapanta in the Greek, uh, can refer to all kinds of things. And he thinks that in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, it is referring to the new creation in 2 Corinthians. Right? So he doesn't think that this is referring to the cosmos or, or things like that. He's referring to the new creation. However, there are two problems with Dale's exegesis. The first problem is that Dale's interpretation ignores the wording and the grammar, the phrasing and expression in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, true whom they are, Christ are all things, matches the monotheistic formula in Romans 11, which we read earlier. From him and through him, true God and to him are all things. So Romans 11 says that it's true God are all things. And 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says it's true Christ are all things. So it's quite clear that when we compare this to that Christ is God, right? Christ is truly divine. Moreover, there are parallels of this formula in other Jewish writings, in Josephus, in Philo, in Hebrews, which also says, Hebrews 2.10, says that God from and through whom are all things, right? So true, all things came through God. And 1 Corinthians 8.6 says all things came through Christ. So Christ is truly divine. So in this monotheistic formula, tapanta refers to the totality of all created things. It's not referring to new creation. Whereas in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians does not speak of all things coming through something, right? So you don't find this uh, phrase or expression uh, in, first, second Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 5 right, when it speaks about new creation. So the expression doesn't match. So it is invalid to think that Paul is talking about new creation in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. So that's the first problem with Deus exegesis. Now, the second problem is that he ignores the context and the Jewish background. The context of Romans 11, 26 indicates that all things, Tapanta is literally referring to all things except God, obviously, and not to new creation. For example, in the answer to the rhetorical question, or who has given a gift to him to receive a gift in return, this is in the context of Romans 11, verse 35, is clearly no one. Why? Because everything, and not only things in the new creation, comes from God. So it's very clear that Romans 11, 26 is saying about all things, uh, all created things, and not just new creation. As for the context of 1 Corinthians 8, 6, now we start reading from verse 4 onwards. It says, concerning the eating of food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and there's no God but one. So for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many laws, and yet for us there's only one God and one Lord, right? Through whom are all things. So this context is important. Why? Because all things is referring not to the new creation, but to the heaven and earth, right? If we read in verse 5, it's talking about heaven and earth, all things include. And this heaven and earth include the so-called gods, the, the idols, uh, which obviously is not part of the new creation, right? You don't, find new, you, you don't find idols in the new creation. Paul is not talking about the new creation. Moreover, the passage is contrasting the real God and the false gods. The contrast in the Jewish thought is that the real God is the creator, as we read earlier on in Psalm 96, right? The Lord is who make, who make the heavens, whereas the idols did not. So it's very clear uh, from the context of 1 Corinthians 8, 6, right? That it's talking about heaven and earth, all things. It's not talking about new creation. Now, Dale raised another issue. He says, even if Jesus is involved in creation and was pre-existent, this, he might not be eternal or uncreated. There are three problems with this view. First of all, 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says that the Lord Jesus, like the Father, is distinguished from all things. So Jesus Christ is not part of all things. All things, the creation, is from the Father. Jesus is not part of all things. Therefore, Jesus is not part of creation. Jesus is uncreated. And the second point is that Romans 11 says that true God are all things, and God is eternal and uncreated. Therefore, Jesus is eternal and uncreated. This is evident when we compare Romans 11 with 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Romans 11.36 also implies that nothing else existed prior to creation except the being of God. Therefore, Jesus being pre-existent to creation and being involved in creation implied that he was within the being of God, which implied that he is, Jesus is uncreated and that he is eternal. Now, Dale has another objection. He claims that in 1 Corinthians 8.6, the Father equals to God and Jesus equals to Lord. Therefore, Jesus is Lord but not God. However, this way of reasoning is clearly fallacious. Why? Because Paul also called the Father Lord, right? So if we follow Dale's reasoning, then God shouldn't be called Lord because Jesus equals Lord, right? So the Father is not Lord, right? No, no this is wrong because we read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we find that Paul also calls the Father Lord as well. And the same word is used, kurios, and this word kurios is used as a substitute for Yahweh in the New Testament. And so 1 Corinthians 8, 6 should not be understood as the Father equals God and Lord, Lord, and Jesus equals Lord and not God. I mean, this is fallacious. Rather, what uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 6 is trying to say is that the one God can be identified by or represented by the Father, and the one Lord, Yahweh, can be identified by and represented by Jesus. The background of this is the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4, where it says the Lord, the Kyrios, our God, 
Kyrios is one, right? So this is the Hebrew uh, affirmation of the, the central affirmation of their faith. And so 1 Corinthians 6 implies that God the Father and Jesus are both within the unique being of the one God and one Lord as proclaimed by the Shema. Now, Dale objects in his podcast, he says that Kurios in 1 Corinthians 6 is referring not to Yahweh to, in the Shema, but to a human master, because the word Kurios can also you know, be used for a human master. However, uh, this, again, you know, this is fallacious because, uh, firstly, Dale's view does not fit the genre and background of 1 Corinthians. Now, as Craig Keener, New Testament scholar, pointed out, most letters, ancient letters, Jewish or Greek, include in, towards the, at the beginning a prayer for the recipient's welfare, which invoke a deity. And Paul invoked not only God the Father for a blessing, but also our Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 1, 3. And so these letters thus open with a recognition of Jesus' deity. Moreover, in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, it says those who call upon the name of our Kyrios, Jesus Christ. And the word uh, call upon is the Greek word epikaleo. So epikaleo is used commonly in the Greek text to refer to the invocation of a god, not a human master. But God, and in the LXX, in the Septuagint, it occurs with a similar meaning as petitioners call upon Yahweh, Kurios. So it's very clear if you look at the genre of the first Corinthians, Paul used Kurios, it's not for, for Jesus Christ, right? When Paul used Kurios for Jesus Christ, it's not referring to a human master, but referring to Yahweh. So that's the first point. And the second point is that Dale's view does not fit the context of first Corinthians 8, 6. Because the context says that through Jesus Christ, all things came, right? So no human curios, no human master is ever claimed to be involved in creation because human beings are creatures, right? Humans are not involved in creating all things. So only the truly divine curios, only Yahweh is involved in creation. And therefore, Paul is clearly using curios for Jesus Christ with, with the meaning of Yahweh, right? Not a human master. And so 1 Corinthians 8, 6 implies that Yahweh, the creator, includes at least two persons, the Father and Jesus. Any one of these it truly divine persons can represent the entire Godhead. Right? So any one of these persons can represent Yahweh. And we find this idea of rep representation in other biblical texts as well. So for example, the Holy Spirit can also represent Yahweh. When we read the book of Acts, for example, when Paul says to Ananias, why do you lie to the Holy Spirit? And then he says that you lie to God. And then in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord can represent God too. So the angel of the Lord in Genesis chapter 31, right? Jacob says that angel uh, said to me, right? In a dream, I'm the God of battle, right? So the angel is representing Yahweh. So the idea of representation is significant. And it, it can be found in the many biblical texts. And therefore, likewise, other expressions concerning Father God can likewise be understood as representation rather than equivalence. So, for example, let's look at John chapter 17, verse 3. I think this is Dale's favorite verse in the Bible. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, Dale thinks that this verse implies that Father equals true God, therefore Jesus isn't. However, again, this is a fallacious deduction. Because, again, the phrasing is similar. One God, and, uh, uh, you know, when you compare this with 1 Corinthians 8, 6, right? One God, the Father, doesn't mean that one God equals the Father. We can, likewise, in John chapter 17, verse 3, one only true God, uh, referring to the Father, doesn't, doesn't mean that the Father equals the only true God. So just like in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, we can understand John chapter 17 as the Father represents the only true God, and or the only true God is identified by the Father. It doesn't mean that the Father equals the only true God. So this is the first point. The second point is that the context indicates that this is the case. In both cases, in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, and also in John chapter 17, we find that the context implies that Jesus is included within the divine being. So, for example, in verse 2 in John chapter 17, John chapter 17, it contrasts the Father not with Jesus himself, but with, it's implying that it contrasts with other claimants to deity. And more importantly, in verse 3, it says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the Father, and Jesus Christ through whom you have sent. So eternal life is that we need to know Jesus as well. And it, of course, in, in the Jewish thought, eternal life is an eternal relationship with God. So the knowledge here is a kind of relational knowledge. And here, Jesus Christ is identified as the object of knowledge alongside the Father, which implies that Jesus is truly divine because eternal life is, is having a relational knowledge with God, right? So this implies that Jesus is within the divine being. Moreover, when we read the verse 5, Jesus goes on to say, with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So Kina points out that this verse is referring back to the gospel, uh, the beginning of the gospel in John chapter 1, where it says that in the beginning was the word and all things were made through him. Now, so this implies that Jesus Christ was involved in creation, creating all things. Now, Dale thinks that this is, uh, John chapter 1 is referring to divine wisdom, not the personal Jesus, but this is, uh, again, another uh, fallacious exegesis. Because uh, it ignores the context. In chapter 1, verse 12, it says that as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So who is the him here? Is it divine wisdom? 
No, it's the name of Jesus, the Son. Because in John 3, 18, it says that he who does not believe in the name of the only Son of God, right, he will be judged. So it's very clear here that uh, John chapter 1 is talking about Jesus being involved in the creation of all things. He pre-existed as the Logos, the Word, and, and then the Word became flesh, right? Became, he took about human nature. And this is moreover confirmed by other passages in the Gospel of John. For example, in John chapter 20, 28, 29, it says, you know, Thomas said to Jesus, my Lord and my God, and Jesus accepted Thomas' confession. Now, Dale thinks that the word God here doesn't mean having the truly divine nature because the word God can refer to other th things. It can refer to angels, humans. However, Dale ignores the fact that when the word God is used together with curios, for example, in Psalms 35, uh, it's referring to Yahweh. Moreover, a personal possessive pronoun is used here, my, right? my Lord and my God. Now, believers in the Bible do not call any other human beings or angels my God plus my Lord, right? The personal possessive pronoun is one of the most common adjectives attached to God in the Jewish sources to indicate that the God in question is the truly divine person who on, uh, uh, is identified with, with a person who honor and worship the divine person as God. So it's used for Yahweh. So what else could it be other than referring to a truly divine person within the being of God, within the being of Yahweh, John 20, 28. Now, I need to clarify, however, that the word God does, that can be used in different sense. God can be used to denote any person who has the property of being truly divine, such as being on the creator side of the creator-creature divide. However, the word God can also be used to denote the one being of God. And this is an important point because, therefore, when Jesus and the Father, they can both be called God in the first sense because they are a divine person within the being of God. But this does not imply that Jesus equals the Father because they are distinct persons within the one being of God. Okay, so this is a clarification. Now, Dale has one more objection. He thinks that biblical passages such as in Isaiah refer to God uh, using singular pronouns, right? using myself, thyself, himself. In reply, there are two possible explanations, and anyone is sufficient to rebut this objection. Firstly, one of the divine person, say for example the Father, is representing Yahweh. And that's why a singular pronoun is used, because one person is representing the entire Godhead. And this does not exclude other, another person within the being of God, as I already explained. And the second possible explanation is that this is a biblical way of communicating unity of plurality within God. That's why a singular pronoun is used. And we see this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, 27. And I have no time to explain this in detail. I may do this in the rebuttal. But I would like to refer the audience to this article published in the Journal for the Study of Old Testament, which talks about the divine plural in Genesis chapter 1. So in conclusion, the New Testament teaches that Jesus is truly divine within the being of the one God, Yahweh. Premise 1, according to the New Testament, being involved in creating all things is sufficient for being truly divine. And we see this in Romans chapter 11, verse 36. Verse 36. Premise 2, according to the New Testament, Jesus was involved in the creating of all things. We see in 1 Corinthians 6, John chapter 1, and also Colossians and Hebrews, which I, know, which I didn't have time to explain, but maybe I'll do so in, during the rebuttal or during the uh, discussion. So therefore, it follows from premise 1 and 2 that according to the New Testament, Jesus is truly divine. In addition, I have presented another argument from John 20, 28. Now, my Lord and my God imply that Jesus is truly divine. And I have also presented another argument from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The word epikaleo, used for Jesus, implied that he is truly divine. And also the genre of the letter as well, right? Um, I explained earlier on. And finally, there are also other passages. I mentioned Philippians 2, 6 to 11. And there are also a number of passages in the Synoptic Gospels as well. Matthew 28, 19, Mark 14, 62, Luke 24, 55. These passages also imply that Jesus is truly divine. Now, I didn't have time to explain this point for, but maybe I'll do so during the rebuttal. We'll, we'll see. So I want to highlight here that any one of these four arguments is sufficient to establish the conclusion that Jesus is truly divine. You know, any one of these arguments will be enough, but, no, but we have four arguments. So we have very good reasons to believe that the New Testament teaches that Jesus is truly divine. Okay, so I shall end my presentation here. When the Trinity's podcast returns, my negative opening statement. Jesus of the New Testament is a man, full stop. He's not a God-man, nor is he the one God himself. He is God's human Messiah, or Christ, God's very special, indeed unique human agent. But he's most definitely not divine in the way that the one God is divine. 
To say that a thing or person is divine is often just a way of saying that they are associated with God in some important way. So the scriptures are divine because God inspired them. The church is divine because it belongs to God. But truly divine in this debate, by that phrase, we mean having the essence or nature divinity. That is, having all the properties which make something a god. I assume, based on Christian scriptures and the long Christian tradition of perfect being theology, that divinity implies at least the following 11 essential qualities. Perfect power, perfect knowledge, being uncreated, existing necessarily, existing asse, existing eternally, being provident over any other things if there are any, being in some sense everywhere, being perfectly morally good, being ultimate in authority, and immortality, that is, being alive, and being such that in principle one can't die. All of these qualities will be essential to one who is fully divine. In other words, it will be absolutely impossible for that one to exist without having all these qualities. As best I can tell, The Bible doesn't anywhere teach that our Lord Jesus has a single one of these qualities. But Catholic traditions concerned to uphold the 4th century innovation that Jesus is the same usia or essence as the Father, basically equally divine as the Father, often claim that the Bible somehow implies them all. But in this debate, I will argue based on clear teachings found in clear biblical passages that Jesus doesn't have, but rather lacks, six of these. Simply lacking one is enough to show that Jesus isn't fully divine, divine the way that the one true God is divine. I'm unleashing six arrows. If any one of them strikes, it is fatal, and the debate is won. As every Christian cross in the world silently proclaims, Jesus died. This shows that he is not essentially immortal. Now we should remember that Jesus is immortal now. The New Testament teaches that God vindicated him by raising him to immortality, giving him an imperishable body. In contrast, Scripture implies that God is essentially immortal, and we must think that God, being absolutely perfect, is alive and, in principle, cannot be dead. Very often, Trinitarian traditions cause massive confusion on this topic, peddling nonsense such that Jesus died in his human nature. But the contradiction is clear, and let me head off a common confusion— I am neither assuming nor asserting that death involves ceasing to exist. If a dead person still exists, say, disembodied, it does not follow that they are not really dead. Our common concept of a human death is that a person loses a distinctively human life, so that all or most of her normal human life functions cease. Jesus did that. He ceased breathing, assumed room temperature, and became unable to do common human actions. But God, who depends on no one and nothing, surely can't lose his divine life, which is what his dying would be. Second, it's a clear teaching of the New Testament that Jesus was tempted to sin. No, not merely tested, as in tried or put through a trial, but tempted. This shows that he was not, by his essence, morally perfect. Someone who is absolutely morally perfect is untemptable. To be tempted to sin is to have a motive to sin. Jesus really was tempted. He was put in difficult circumstances where he clearly had a motive to sin, and yet he passed the test with flying colors, never sinning, but always remaining faithful to his and our God. Mind you, I'm not saying that it's a sin to be tempted to sin. Rather, I'm saying that top-level moral perfection brings with it immunity from temptation. Third, A fully divine being is essentially ultimate in authority, in the sense that necessarily either he is the only being or any other moral beings there are are under his authority. In contrast, Jesus is under a God, the same one who is the God over you and me. The New Testament could hardly be more clear than that the Father, also known as God, is Jesus' God, the God over him. Thus it teaches that Jesus is not fully divine. Fourth, Jesus, being a man, was not uncreated, but rather created, or we can say part of the created realm. Any human being is by definition part of that realm, the realm of things which owe their existence to God the Creator. An uncreated human, it seems to me, is a contradiction in terms, just as is the phrase created God, given the concept of deity or divinity in a monotheistic context. Fifth, Jesus, being a human, was not essentially perfect in knowledge. He told us quite explicitly that there was something he didn't know, the day and hour of his future return. This, he said, only God knows. But someone who is essentially perfect in knowledge can't fail to know any truth. 
I know that my debate opponent has a very clever new theory about how it is that Jesus supposedly really is omniscient, even though he made the claim I just mentioned, but perhaps we'll discuss that later. Speaking of my opponent, in print, he has followed traditional misreadings of a few passages in which Jesus is described as knowing, quote, all things. In brief, this was an ancient idiom of praising the great knowledge of the person in question. Thus, in 2 Samuel 14, a woman praises King David by saying, My Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Similarly, the Samaritan woman in John 4 is impressed that Jesus, quote, told me everything I have ever done. Everything? No, not strictly speaking. The same woman testifies that I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. What? The Messiah will be omniscient? No, he'll have astounding wisdom. He'll teach us all we need to know. He won't, being a man, know all, strictly speaking. But this is not strict speaking at all. It is enthusiastic, exaggerating speaking. The disciples in John 16 get it right when they say, Now we know that you know all things and do not need to have anyone question you. By this, we believe that you came from God, right? Not that you're God or that you're omniscient. In a human context, knowing all things isn't omniscience, but rather evidence that Jesus came from God. This Jesus, who, yes, is amazingly wise, who has told us the truth that he heard from God, from whom we have received the words of eternal life, this one is sometimes unsure about what is going to happen next, which is why he's able to ask God for the favor we read about in Mark 14.36, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. In the Gospels, Jesus asks questions for information from other humans, as we all do. Who touched me, he asked, when he felt the power go out from him on one occasion. On another, as a boy rolls around on the ground, foaming at the mouth, Jesus asks his father, How long has this been happening to him? Like us, he often asks because he doesn't know something. Despite his astounding and we might say divine wisdom, Jesus during his earthly ministry was far from being perfect in knowledge. He'd have been more perfect if he knew all the aforementioned things. Lastly, the Jesus of the Bible is not essentially perfect in power. To be sure, he does many astounding things. But as the Apostle Peter preaches in Acts, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. It was because in that way God was with him that Jesus could go about doing and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. To put it differently, as Jesus says in the fourth gospel, the Father who dwells in me does his works. A human who is empowered by God can do, well, anything God wants him to do. Such an empowered human can preach God's message, walk on water, heal the sick, or even forgive sins, as we see Jesus do in Mark 2 and in Matthew 9. There's no scriptural reason to think that Jesus can do all of these things without God's empowerment and or permission. Sometimes, too, an action of Jesus can depend on what other people are doing. Thus, in chapter 6, Mark seems to imply that in his hometown, Jesus was unable to do some miracles because of the people's lack of faith. Now, in all of these cases, as best I can tell, the authors never warn us not to infer what we naturally do infer, which is that Jesus was not, then, perfect in power. Is it logically possible that a being who is perfect in power could choose to operate for a time using only a small subset of his full powers? Sure, but the New Testament doesn't teach that, but simply presents us with a Jesus who seems to be, as very impressive as he is, limited in power. Thus Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, Jesus was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. The clear and emphatic main thesis of all four New Testament Gospels is that Jesus is God's Christ, his Messiah, meaning his anointed one, a specially chosen and empowered human being in the line of David, who is destined to be the future king of Israel and much more. It's staggeringly unlikely that these authors made this their thesis statement if they also held that Jesus is divine or that he's a person within God. Jesus, were he divine, would have a reason to hide this during his ministry, but the gospel writers would not. So either they fumble the ball when it comes to their main thesis, or the authors just didn't believe that. 
The New Testament Jesus is a lot of things. He's the predicted prophet like Moses. He's a perfect example for us of faith and trust in God and of perfect obedience to God. The job description of being God's Messiah, it turns out, includes a lot more than some Jews of his time imagined, such as being the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But the New Testament authors never say that this job description uh, requires Jesus to have the divine nature or essence to be divine in the way the one God is divine. Although it's suggested in Hebrews 2 that it was especially appropriate that our Savior should be a human being. In the whole New Testament, we have a picture of the amazing Savior Jesus, who is nonetheless a man, not a God-man or a God in disguise. He does some things which even the perfect God cannot do, namely, putting his faith in God, undergoing temptation to sin, and dying as a once-and-for-all sin offering to God. Given these clear claims, how can any Bible-reading Christian think that Jesus is divine? Well, for one thing, and I think this has been true since the beginning of Christianity, some people simply confuse together Jesus and God. If, of course, Jesus is God himself, that is, if Jesus and God are numerically one, then Jesus must have all the essential divine attributes. But the Bible does not teach that Jesus is God himself, but rather that Jesus is the Son of God. I think that my opponent, sensible man that he is, acknowledges qualitative differences between Jesus and God. He does not collapse them, unlike many lesser apologists. In general, Christians mistakenly infer that Jesus is truly divine from many qualities which the New Testament Jesus does have. For instance, they see that this Jesus is rightly worshipped, and supposing that only one with a divine nature is rightly worshipped, they conclude that he has a divine nature. But the New Testament Jesus is worshipped because God has highly exalted him and because of Jesus' amazing service to God in saving us. Paul teaches that because of Jesus' obedient service, even through a terrible death, therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. According to Paul, God exalts Jesus because of Jesus' obedience, and he exalts Jesus so that every knee must bend to Jesus and every tongue must confess him as Lord. And this worship, unlike the worship given to God, is to the glory not only of the recipient, that is Jesus, but also to the glory of the God above him, his Father. In Revelation 4, God is worshipped because he's the one creator. That's what they explicitly say. But the risen Jesus, who is brought into God's throne room in chapter 5, is worshipped because of his service to God. That he is worshipped, then, does not show that Jesus is divine. The reader will search in vain for any such principle in the Bible that it's only right to worship someone who is divine or has a divine nature. Rather, the Old Testament law demands that we only worship Yahweh himself and not any of the alleged other gods, the deities of the nations. The New Testament affirms that, but adds that in addition to worshiping God, we should also now worship his human son. That's why God exalted him so that we should do that. And of course, honoring the son is a way of honoring the God whose son he is, the one who sent him, empowered him, and vindicated him. In sum, for the New Testament authors, Jesus is not a rival object of worship to God, but he is an additional object of worship to God. In their view, honor given to Jesus honors God. It must be said that some are overly proud of their two natures' speculations. They suppose that they can discern the depths of Jesus detecting the metaphysical components of his very being, and the assumption is that somehow this supposed discovery will smooth over the contradictions between divinity and humanity that we've just been looking at. So Jesus is mortal as human, but immortal as divine, He's perfect in knowledge as divine, but limited in knowledge as human. As divine, he's untemptable, but as human, he's temptable. Now, understood as properties, these two natures either fail to get rid of the contradictions or the theory devolves into nonsense. If the one Jesus as divine can't be tempted, but as human can be tempted, we're now just preaching a contradictory Christ. But I assume, and I think my debate opponent agrees, that no contradictions are true. If one instead conjures up new properties, saying that the one Jesus is temptable as human, but not temptable as divine, 
I'm sorry, I don't know what these odd sounding properties are unless they involve respectively being temptable and not being temptable. But that's just where we started. Some here will posit two Jesuses, though they never put it that way. One who is divine and so can't be tempted, while the other is human and so can be tempted. But this, while popular historically, is a disaster when it comes to faithfulness to the New Testament, which teaches exactly one Jesus, one unique Son of God. Two nature's speculations are just that, and we're better off without them. In conclusion, notice that the New Testament authors never warn us against thinking that Jesus is a mere man, that is, someone who is human but not also divine. While they warn us about other mistaken inferences we might make about Jesus, they never lift a finger to warn us away from believing in an only human Jesus. This is strong evidence that they did not think him to be divine. Unlike countless later preachers, they are wholly unworried by calling Jesus a man, full stop, not immediately adding that he's also divine. Thus, John has Jesus say that he is a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. And Peter, freshly filled by God's Spirit, preaches about a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders and signs that God did through him. And without any due warnings, John presents Jesus as saying, The Father is greater than I. And Mark has him say, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Of course, Jesus was and is good, very good. But he must here mean a kind of goodness that only God has and that he lacks, such as being good in a wholly undrived way, or maybe just being perfectly morally good so that one is even untemptable. To conclude, Don't let traditionalists scare you. There's no danger in agreeing both with Christ and his apostles that God has many essential divine attributes which Jesus lacks. Again, immortality, moral perfection, ultimate authority, uncreatedness, perfection in knowledge, and perfection in power. One who says that a mere man could never do what the New Testament says that Jesus did, that's just the voice of unbelief. I recommend that you should take Jesus' advice, believe in God, believe also in me. Thank you. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Loke's rebuttal of my negative opening statement. Uh, thank you so much, Dale, for your presentation. So Dale mentioned that Jesus was called a man, right, in First Timothy 2.5. Now, no uh, Trinitarian denies that Jesus is called a man because the Bible says that, as I mentioned, the Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus took up a human nature, chapter 2, verses 6 to 7. So, of course, Jesus is a man, but he is not merely a man because there's also other passages in the New Testament which imply that he is divine. I, I, I presented four arguments just now, and Dale did not rebut any of them, uh, but maybe he will do so later, so I'll, I'll, I'll wait for his rebuttal. But what I'm trying to say is that, you no, know, yeah, of course, Jesus is a man, but that doesn't imply that he's not divine. So he could, be, he could have a human nature and as well as a divine nature. And then Dale goes on to... Uh, define being truly divine as having all the divine properties that he he listed. However, that's not the only way to conclude that Jesus is truly divine. I mean, we we don't have to prove that Jesus has all the properties before concluding that he's truly divine. Rather, we can use other arguments, and I already presented four just now, right? Any of those arguments will be enough to conclude that he's truly divine. So uh, we don't have to prove that Jesus met all the the properties, right? We just have to use one of the arguments, which I used earlier on, and that would already be sufficient to imply that Jesus is truly divine. Now, Dale also goes on to talk about uh, the God, uh, Jesus dying, being tempted, etc. However, I already mentioned right at the beginning of my presentation that that is a fallacious inference because a person can have two parts, I mentioned earlier on. So this death you know, could be attributable to his human nature. And in fact, this is explained in Philippians chapter 2, I mentioned earlier on. Right? So this is not something that Christian theologians have tried, uh, tried to come up with, but you can find it right in the Bible. 
right? Jesus is truly divine. He took up a human nature. That is why he was able to die. I mean, this is implied by Philippians chapter 2. As for his, Jesus' temptation, uh, Dale mentioned that Jesus was tempted, and, he think, and Dale thinks that being tempted means having impure motives. Well, I don't think so. Uh, firstly, the Bible goes on to say that Jesus was sinless. What is sin in the Bible? Sin means to fall short of the glory of God, Romans chapter 3. Right? So to fall short of perfection will be sinful. So if Jesus has impure motives, that will, be, that will be make him a sinner. But the Bible denies that he's a sinner, and therefore it's not the case that Jesus has any imperfect motives, contrary to what Dale is saying. And the second point is that being temptable doesn't require imperfect motives, right? It just, requ- just requires some kind of desires, for example. So we know that Jesus has a human nature, Jesus has a physical human body, and this physical body can become hungry, for example. So Jesus felt hunger, and that's why he was tempted. Uh, so, and that's how the, the Satan right, tried to tempt him, say that you know, if, if you are truly the Son of God, you can turn the stones into bread. Why? Because Jesus was feeling hungry. And so having this desire to act in a certain way, I mean, this desire itself is not sinful, right? I mean, it's not, it's not a sin to feel hungry. So Jesus doesn't have, uh, Jesus is, is, and it's also, not in, in, it's also not an impure motive to, to feel hungry. I mean, feeling hungry is a natural thing. It's not, a, it's not something imperfect. But Jesus has a human body. That's why he was able to feel hungry. And that's how he was able to be tempted without any imperfect motives. Dale goes on to say, you know, being divine, truly divine means having ultimate authority. Now, Philippians chapter 2 talks about this already. It says, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, and I mentioned that this is the Greek word morphe, means that he's the, you know, he has the reality of what characterized God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. So even though he's truly divine, he did not hold on to his divine nature. He did not make use, but rather he, he emptied himself, right? He took the form of a slave, so he took up a human nature. And that's how he has a human body. Ephesians chapter 2 goes on to say that Jesus became obedient unto death. Obedient. So even though Jesus is truly divine, he has same equality with God, but he chose to submit to the Father. So a truly divine person can choose to submit to another person. So Jesus could have the truly divine nature and yet choose to submit, right? This is functional subordination. It doesn't imply ontological subordination. This is a very important point to note. And then concerning the next point about being created, I already mentioned in my opening statement just now that there are a number of passages, which, for, for example, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, which imply that Jesus was uncreated, right? That all things came through him, right? All things came through God, right? God is uncreated, therefore Jesus is uncreated in his divine nature, right? So Jesus' divine nature is uncreated. He pre-existed from eternity and then took up a human nature, right? So his human nature is created, but his divine nature is uncreated. And then Dale goes on to talk about Jesus not knowing something. Dale quoted Mark chapter 13 and argued that this implied that Jesus was ignorant. However, John chapter 16 implies that Jesus was omniscient. Now, this passage says that Jesus knew all things. Now, Dale said just now, know all things doesn't mean, doesn't necessarily mean know everything. It doesn't necessarily um, doesn't uh, imply that literally. However, we need to look at the context, right? The context is the important key here. Now, if you look at the context of John chapter 16, what was Jesus talking about? Jesus was talking about the Father. Uh, in verse 25, and then the disciple says, no, we know all things. Now, so what this implies is that Jesus knows all things about the Father. So who can know all things about the Father? Who can know all things about God unless he's God himself, right? And then Jesus goes on to say that you know, he, he shared the glory with the Father before the world was in John chapter 17, which we talked about just now. And that implies that Jesus pre-existed creation. He was involved in creation. And therefore, knowing all things here within the context is consistent, you know, is implying that he is truly divine. It's omniscient that he's talking about here. And so we have passages that talk about Jesus knowing all things, literally. And we also have passages that talk about Jesus apparently not being knowing all things. So how do we reconcile this? I have offered in my book, The uh, Cryptic Model of Incarnation, which t- uh, proposed a divine pre-conscious model to make sense of this. Now, Dale says that uh, this is uh, my clever way of thinking, or I invented this. But actually, you can find this idea in the writings of John Calvin, for example. Right, so Calvin explained the apparent ignorance of Jesus as follows. He says, Christ, who knew all things, was ignorant in respect of his perception as a man. So in perception means that he, he chose not to be aware of something. And this is a model that I developed in my book, A Cryptic Model. The key idea is this. The Greek word oidon in Mark 13, 32, which is translated as no, this can, can mean perception, as Calvin realized. It can mean awareness. And so Jesus can choose not to be aware of something, but yet know something. So for example, I I know calculus, but I don't have to be aware of calculus all the time, right? You can know something without requiring to constantly being aware of what you know, right? You can choose not to think about some things, 
And Jesus being omnipotent, being God, he can choose to restrict himself such that you know, he can be limited in his perception as a human being. And that's how you know, he can be unsure about some things, as Dale pointed out. And this is perfectly consistent with him being truly omniscient on the one hand, right? So he still has omniscient, but choose not to use his omniscient. And this is, in fact, what Calvin argues in the passage, which I quoted earlier on. They also mentioned that Jesus, his power, you know, he seems to rely on the Father, sometimes rely on the Holy Spirit, and sometimes it appears that he's not able to do miracles. Well, actually, again, this can be understood in light of the idea of functional subordination. That is, Jesus, God incarnate, can choose to restrict himself and submit to the Father, as Philippians chapter 2 says. Philippians chapter 2 is a very important passage, which I think they'll ignored, uh, they'll neglected, right, this passage. It says that Christ emptied himself, which means that he can choose not to use his divine powers and make himself dependent on the Father, right, submit to the Father. And the reason why Jesus Christ does that is because one of the reasons for being incarnate is to accomplish salvation, and not only that, but also to live a perfect human life, to set an example for other human beings to follow. So Jesus set a perfect example you know, uh, in, in, in his reliance on the Father and the Holy Spirit. And this is to teach us to rely on God, on the Father and on the Holy Spirit as well, right, in our ministry. And, and so you know, Jesus set the example in, in that sense. He restricted himself in that sense. And so this also explains you know, the passages that talk about the Father is greater than I, right, greater in the sense of being functionally greater, right, in the sense that Jesus subordinated himself functionally to the Father. Finally, they also mention Mark chapter 10, 18, where Jesus says, no one is good but the Father alone. Now, in that passage, if we read it in context, we need to understand that that passage actually concerns soteriology. I mean, the young man came to look for Jesus and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what is the problem with the young man? The problem is that that person, right, is, he's too self-righteous. He thinks that he has obeyed the law. You know? And so he's using the word good right, in, in a very loose way. And so Jesus corrected him by saying that, you know, why do you call me good? Do you understand what the word good means, right? Now, Jesus is not denying that he's good. He's actually making, trying to make the person reflect on what, you know, on what does he understood by the word good. And only God is good, right? Which means that all human beings are not. But Jesus is not denying that he himself is good. He's saying, that, why do you call me good? When, when, you, when you call me good, do you know what you're talking about? Right? That's that what Jesus is saying. That's the point, right? Because that passage concerns soteriology. And then Jesus goes on to expose his hypocrisy and to ask him to sell everything, which the young man wasn't willing to do, right? So um, it shows that he's not truly good, right? unlike Jesus, right? Who was willing to give up everything for us when he died on the cross. And then other passages in the New Testament say that Jesus is sinless, I already pointed out, right? And that, which means that no, he is actually perfect. When the Trinity's podcast returns, my rebuttal to Dr. Loke's positive case at the start of this podcast. Dr. Loke's highly developed and sophisticated views are an advanced evolution of the great Trinitarian recovery project that has been underway, particularly in about the last 40 years. Through the modern era, historical critical interpretation has, one by one, taken away the favorite proof texts for the deity of Christ and for the Trinity. So recent scholars have rolled up their sleeves and gotten very creative in inventing new ways in which supposedly the deity of Christ and the Trinity are encoded in the Bible. He follows recent fashion in his books about talking about the highest possible Christology in the New Testament, but surely that's an exaggeration. The highest possible Christology, that than which none greater can be conceived, is simply identifying Jesus with God, which we see in today's oneness Pentecostals, ancient modalistic monarchians, and a host of today's confused Jesus-as-God apologists. But Dr. Loke, rightly, doesn't collapse Jesus with God. As he's a Trinitarian, he sees that identifying Jesus with God would mean that they can't differ in any way, which would make Jesus tripersonal. Instead, going with what looks like either a three- or a four-self Trinity theory, he identifies Jesus with one of the persons within the one multipersonal God. His so-called highest Christology rules out Jesus being the one God himself, which would be the Trinity, but makes him something like a proper part of God. 
Dr. Loke, especially in his book, has leaned very heavily on two unclear and unusual Pauline texts to show supposedly that from the very beginning, Christians considered Jesus to be fully divine and even to be part of the one God or a person within the being of the one God. In so doing, he ignores a ton of New Testament counter evidence, which I presented in my opening. Now, 1 Corinthians 8.6 has historically been a favorite text of Unitarian Christians, but it seems clearly to presuppose that the one God and the Father are one and the same. That's why it's been our favorite. But recently, I think due to the work of Bauckham and Wright, there has arisen a bizarre argument that Paul is here inserting Jesus into the Shema, by which they seem to mean something like teaching that Jesus is a person within God. Part of this argument is based on noting that many of the same words here are used in the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew of Deuteronomy 6.4. That, of course, hardly settles the matter. Nor is it clear that this passage is about the Genesis creation at all. As Dr. Loke notes, some commenters think that Paul here has in mind the new creation accomplished by or through the Messiah Jesus. And I would add that the phrase tapanta, literally the all or all things, very often does not mean all the created things and often means people or something like intelligent beings. It's a radically uh, context-dependent phrase. So it seems like a poor strategy to place so much weight on this passage. And it's not a good argument to seize on a different context where clearly creation has an issue, and then say there must also be creation uh, as the subject here. Worse, even if Dr. Loke is right that Paul is talking about the Genesis creation and giving the pre-human Jesus a role in it, it doesn't really make the point he wants. And this is crucial to understanding the overall weakness of his case for Jesus being fully divine. If Paul here is saying that the Father created the cosmos through the pre-human Jesus, that excludes the pre-human Jesus from being fully divine. Why? Because the biblical idea of the Creator is the idea of being the ultimate source of the universe which rules out being the second most ultimate source. If an ancient Jew were to tell you that God created the world, and you asked him, well, who is doing this through God? That Jew would say, you're just not getting it. You're not understanding what we Jews mean by saying that God is the creator. He's the ultimate source. So any helper, any tool, so to speak, that God might use in creating will by definition not be the creator. Loke following many others obscures this point by mushy talk about being involved in creation, Okay, but not all involvement is equal. Worse, the God of the Old Testament asserts that he created all on his own. Genesis 1 implies this too with its singular verb use. Even though God there announces his intention to create to his heavenly counsel, still it is his hand alone, so to speak, that creates. If that's not clear enough, later prophets make the point explicit. In Isaiah, God, through the prophet, brags, I made the earth and created humankind upon it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. And I am Yahweh, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who by myself spread out the earth. This is why an early Christian, particularly a Jew, would probably not be looking to find a helper for God to create through, so that God doesn't, as it were, have to get his hands dirty, Of course, some Platonized thinkers would want exactly that, as because of the bizarre cosmology of Plato's Timaeus, they assumed that God was too transcendent to create directly or on his own, a concern we see very clearly in Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trypho the Jew from mid-2nd century. But we don't see that concern anywhere in the New Testament. In fact, it's bizarre to think that an all-powerful being is unable to directly create somehow but needs an intermediary. This one who says that he alone created, note the repeated singular personal pronouns, this divine person who has the personal name Yahweh, this one in the New Testament is called the Father. This is everywhere assumed in the New Testament, and the assumption is occasionally clearly implied as well. If the Father alone created, which seems to be assumed in 11 clear and undisputed mentions of the Genesis creation in the New Testament— When they talk about God creating in the New Testament, that means the Father creating, because normally that's what the word God means there. Okay, but if that's right, then whoever was involved in creating has to be just that one God himself, the Father, if indeed he did it by himself. So if Paul really thought that Jesus created the world, he'd be one who foolishly collapses together the Father and the Son. We can all see that Paul doesn't do that. He constantly distinguishes the two, as many have observed. He would be incoherently suggesting that one and the same self is both the ultimate source of the cosmos and the second most ultimate source of the cosmos, which I take it is so foolish that charity to Paul requires us to find a better interpretation of this text. 
and this can be done. Paul's actual words, which are much expanded by most translators, are, Yet to us one God the Father, of whom the all, and we to him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the all, and we through him. Notice how easily Paul moves back and forth between talking about the all and talking about us Christians using the pronoun we. This could be explained by supposing that the all in question is all of us, all Christians. So then his meaning could be something like this. Uh, And this is another uh, interpretation that's possible, just like the other one that Dr. Loke mentions that I've given before. The important point is this is not clearly about creation at all. He might mean something like, Yet to us, there is one God, the Father, from whom we get salvation and for whom we live. Uh, and there is one Lord Jesus Christ through whom we get salvation and through whom we live. It can mean easily something like that. If you don't believe me about Tapanta, if you think it, all, it has to mean all the things in the heaven and the earth, uh, do a word study of Tapanta and Paul and you'll see how many different things it means. The other unclear passage that Loke unwisely makes foundational in his book, and again here, Uh, he again follows recent fashions in doing this, is Philippians 2. Like many, he overconfidently reads later Trinitarian ideas back into this text, supposing that being in the morphe, the form of God, must mean having the divine essence, or usia. To the contrary, outside of technical philosophical context, it typically did not mean that, instead referring to a condition, often an observable condition of a thing. The Septuagint in one place says that a pagan idol is in the morphe of a man, So, not in essence, otherwise that statue would literally be a man. It seems that being in the form of God, here is another way of saying that Jesus enjoyed a sort of equality with God, but that is precisely what he gives up in favor of the form, that is the condition of a slave, right? And a condition that you can give up is not an essential, it's not an essence. Essences are ingive-upable unless you cease to exist. So, neither condition is supposed to be an essence, neither slavehood nor uh, equality with God or being in the form of God. And in brief, it's not hard to take this self-abasement of Jesus to be holy within his human lifetime. It's not even clear that the passage assumes pre-existence for him. I can't go into all the details, but I have an article on my blog called A Reading of Philippians 2, if you want the details. Okay, but even if the passage teaches pre-existence, the one God here is the Father, and this one who obeys God even unto death, so it's clearly not fully divine, because he can die. If you're trying to prove Jesus to be fully divine, this passage is not your friend unless you believe in a mortal God. Just a few other things. We'll have to include more of these in the discussion, but uh, his view about Jesus' knowledge unfortunately makes him a liar. Jesus knows full well that when he says he doesn't know the day or the hour and he doesn't give any qualification, he knows that his hearers will infer that he doesn't know the day or the hour in any way. But of course, according to Loke, he does know the day or hour. It's just in his pre-conscious. Okay, that's intentional deception. That's lying. As it would be all the going around pretending like he doesn't know things and asking questions. And that's not a good view about Jesus if it implies that he's a liar. John 17.3 clearly makes two claims. It makes the claim that the Father is true God, has that status, and also that no one else has that status. Some other things we'll have to talk about in the discussion. I think my time is up. This week's thinking music is the track Don't Die, Dog, instrumental by Greg Atkinson. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinities podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook. And help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinity's Podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement.
for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.